Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. It is incredibly good to be with you guys, and we want to thank you for the warm welcome we have received. Uh, This has been an amazing weekend. Um, We go all over the country. Uh, We've been involved in a lot of different missions conferences. I can honestly say that this one has exceeded them all. Uh, that what's been put together here is phenomenal. The work that's gone into it is phenomenal. And just the, the depth of commitment, both to missions and to being the church of Jesus, has been phenomenal. And we are very, very grateful for what God is doing here in Lincoln County. <clears throat> I would ask you now to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at this very familiar passage, the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. Acts 1, beginning with verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray again for just a moment. Father, it is always appropriate to begin any time studying your word by acknowledging our need for you, our complete and total dependence on you. And Father, I pray now that uh, the very Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised, who now lives inside of every believer in Jesus, would come and do his gracious work of not just teaching us, but transforming us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love to speculate. And we especially love to speculate about the direction of history and the end times. Uh, I was a kid when the late great planet Earth came out. Many of you, as I look around, there are at least a few of you who share my, my general age category, and you may remember it as well. You remember discussions talking about who is Gog and who is Magog, and are the locusts and Joel actually symbols of Soviet helicopters and things like that. But it was just a symptom of, I think, a, a condition that the, the, the church has experienced throughout its ages. We want to know what's coming. We want to know where history is going. So we want to know that, and we're in good company. 
the apostles very clearly were curious as well. Now, their perspective was a bit different from ours. Uh, their perspective, as we see in this text, had more to do with, with, with Isra- Israelite nationalism than it had to do merely with theological speculation. But as they gathered with him, they said, okay, Lord, is, is, this, is this it? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' response indicated that he had a very different agenda. They ask about the timing of what God's up to. He responded by giving them the Great Commission again. Now, as you read through the New Testament, you begin to realize that Jesus gave the Great Commission several times in the 40 days between his, ascent, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. Luke 24 records apparently the first. Luke 24 records the time of Jesus' resurrection. And then you will recall there were uh, two people walking uh, to Emmaus that night. Jesus appears with them, explains the entire Bible in terms of himself, then disappears. They rush back to Jerusalem. Jesus shows up again, gives them the best Old Testament survey that's ever happened, and then says, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is saying, I just explained the whole Old Testament to you. The whole Old Testament was actually pointing to me, and not just to me as I have already accomplished the work of your salvation, but also me now working through you to get the good news of that to the ends of the age. In other words, the global mission of the church is just as much a fulfillment of the Old Testament as is the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Then at some point later on, they're up in Galilee. Jesus is with them, and that's when he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And now this passage, once again, A different time, different words, but the same basic message. It clearly was something he wanted them to grasp. This is not just a throwaway suggestion at the end of his life. Oh, yeah, if you think about it, you might want to do this. It's something he thought was so important that he commanded them to do it over and over and over again. Now, this time, which is basically the last words he said before ascending into heaven, he he frames it in terms of God's plan for history. He explains the role of the Holy Spirit in this whole undertaking. He tells them the nature of the task, and he also tells them the scope of the task. And I want to look at each one of those things, God's plan for history, the role of the Holy Spirit, the nature of our mission, and the scope of our mission. First, God's plan for history. This passage is framed by references to where history is going. It begins with their question, will you at this time restore uh, the kingdom to Israel? It ends with the angel's promise, Jesus is coming back in exactly the same way as you saw him go. And it's inevitable that they would see a connection between Jesus' coming, even what prompted their question, and what's going to happen at the end of the time. See, they had 
read their Old Testaments. They understood what the prophets had promised. And the prophets promised that there would be a day of the Lord that would be the decisive moment in history. And they clearly saw that the day of the Lord is connected to Messiah. Therefore, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They were convinced the full day of the Lord must have come. But Jesus makes it clear that they're actually asking the wrong questions. They want timing and details. They want a chart, and they want all the details written down on it. Jesus focuses instead on what this time between his first coming and his second coming is for. They wanted the restoration of Israel, and they want it now. Jesus had a different agenda. See, as you look at the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets, and you look at the whole theme of the day of the Lord, you begin to realize that there's several components to it. The day of the Lord is going to be the day of judgment. It's going to be the day in which God judges everyone according to their response to him. It's going to be the day of Messiah, the day that God himself steps onto the stage of human history as a man and makes things right. But it's also going to be the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. More on that in just a moment. We see that in the the book of Joel and then fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And most importantly for what Jesus is talking about here, it's the day of the ingathering of the Gentiles, of the nations. Even though God had focused on Israel, even though he had specifically poured his, his revelation into this one people group, All the way through the Old Testament, God had been promising that his intention was that that his people would be a blessing to all peoples, that he intended for his salvation to reach to the ends of the earth, as we talked about last night. So they were focusing on the nationalistic parts, the fact that Israel was going to be restored, and Jesus points them in a different direction. He pointed them to what they needed to be doing during this unexpected interval in fulfillment of that last part of the day of the Lord, the ingathering of the nations into the people of God. They wanted details. He gave them the purpose of this time between the times. They wanted the defeat of the Gentiles. That's what they're asking for. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, we've been captive under the rule of the Romans for a long time. We're sick of it. We're sick of being downtrodden. We're sick of being the, the, the weak guy in the room. We want to be top dog again. We were top dog under David and Solomon. We want to go there once again. And so will you right now use us to whoop up on the Gentiles, to defeat them and put them in their place under our feet? And instead, Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to use, the, use you as the instruments of their salvation. The very people, the Gentiles, the nations, are going to receive my blessing through you. So yes, there is a connection between missions and the end times. Many of you are probably aware, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in, in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But the connection here is that There's a purpose to this time. There's a reason why Jesus didn't just immediately end everything, his first coming. And it has to do with what God is up to in human history. The point of this period in the history of the world is global evangelization. And when you grasp that, when you grasp that the very reason why God allows this time to go on 
is so that we can get the gospel to the ends of the earth that will revolutionize your thinking and it will revolutionize your discipleship. Well, how are we going to do that? The power comes from the Holy Spirit. So why was the Holy Spirit given to his people? You know, as we look through the New Testament, we see several answers. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the key instrument in the writing of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that carries people along so that they wrote exactly what God wanted so that we can have full confidence in his trustworthiness. Jesus taught us that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, to get people saved, you first got to get them lost. And most people are too sort of wrapped up in themselves to realize just how desperate their condition is. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gets them lost so that he can then get them saved. And that's his work of of conviction. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the new birth. Being born again and being born of the Spirit are one and the same thing. And then when we have been born again, he is given to us as the guarantee, the down payment the foretaste of our inheritance in Christ. He puts sin to death in us. He produces in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit, making us more and more like Jesus. He gives us gifts for service in the body of Christ. He has a glorious ministry in the life of his people. But as great as those answers may be, they're incomplete because most of them concentrate on what he does for us, and that's where our focus tends to be. However, it has to be understood in light of what he intends to do with us. And that's what's happening right here. This is the perspective this passage gives, what the Holy Spirit is going to do with us in the mission of God. Uh, Biblical scholar Michael Green about a generation ago said this. Now, he's making reference to the, uh, the way Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. And he says, the comforter did not come to make people comfortable. He came to make the missionaries. Hear that again. The, Holy, the comforter didn't come to make us comfortable. He came to make us missionaries. And so this passage fleshed out the relationship between the Holy Spirit and our mission as Christians. The Holy Spirit gives us power for our mission. And it's power we absolutely need. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he meant it. Apart from him, there is nothing we can do of eternal significance. Oh, there's a lot of activity we can generate. But in our own strength, in our own power, we can do nothing that will actually matter a thousand years from now. The foes we face are too strong for us. So if the fallen human beings that we're trying to reach with the gospel are blind to the gospel... They're slaves to sin. They're dead in their sin. I mean, the Bible paints a very uncomplimentary picture of what fallen humanity is like. And that's what was true of us before we got saved. So we face the flesh around the world. We also face the world in rebellion against God as we see whole societies organized in ways that oppose the message of the gospel. And by the way, that's not just societies out there, that's society here more and more. The world is human beings organized to rebel against God. And then there's the devil and his demons who are real. So we face enemies too strong for us, but our foes are nothing compared to him. 
Jesus said, no, God said through the Apostle John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that is incredibly good news because it's power we lack, but it's power we desperately need. And the New Testament then links that power, the gift of the Holy Spirit, with proclamation. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. I mean, it's, it's a link the New Testament makes over and over again. Just a few chapters over in Acts 4.31, Luke tells us, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So how do you know whether or not something genuinely is a work of the Holy Spirit or whether it's a work of some other spirit or just human emotion and energy? Well, one way, of course, is that wherever the Spirit is, the fruit of the Spirit are evident in people's lives. And so where the Holy Spirit is at work, people are becoming more and more like Jesus. But the other thing that we're given here is that where the Holy Spirit is active, evangelism and missions are happening. If Jesus is not lifted up and exalted, then it's probably not the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's certainly not. The Holy Spirit came to make us missionaries, and evangelists. But please notice that this is a power that uses us, not a power we use. People like power. People will turn to religion to get power, but they're looking for a power they can use for their own purposes. This power is different. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars. You all remember that? Luke used the force. No, 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 no. You don't use the Holy Spirit. He's Lord and you're not. This is a power that uses us for his purposes, for his mission to advance his kingdom and promote his glory. And so also where it is obvious that someone is exalting or puffing up themselves, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. When someone is showcasing how important they are, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a power that uses us to exalt Jesus and to get the good news of salvation to those who have never heard it. So that's where the power comes from. The power for mission comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, what is it? What is the nature of the task? And the nature of the task, very simply, is proclamation. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. Gospel proclamation lies at the heart of the mission of the church. Holy Spirit makes us his witnesses. Now, when you think about witnesses, there are certain qualifications that are necessary for someone to be a witness. We, we typically use the word for what happens in court. And whether or not you've been in court, you've probably seen enough TV dramas or things like that that we're all kind of familiar with what goes on when you have a witness on the witness stand in a trial. Certain things you have to have. First, you have to have experience. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to have something to contribute that comes from experiencing the reality that's at stake. And so it is with us. We need to know him to witness to him. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes him known to us and then through us. So you've got, you got to have experience, but you've also got to have credibility. Attorneys will try to discredit the trustworthiness of a witness. They'll try and show some reason why uh, this person either doesn't know what they're talking about or they're just so dishonest you can't trust a thing they say. And that's the way it is also with the world toward us. 
The world is constantly trying to discredit us, discredit the gospel through the way that Christians behave. And sadly, there's plenty of ammunition for that. There's plenty of times where Christians don't make the gospel look good in the way that they live. But that is going to be essential for us to be effective witnesses. Our lives have to back up our testimony. Now, that doesn't mean that we just live our lives and don't testify. But it does mean that we need to have the work of the Holy Spirit in us, putting sin to death, bringing to life the fruit of the Spirit, such that when people look at us, they think of Jesus. We reflect him. We bear his image in such a way that we point people not to ourselves, but to him. And then you have experience, you have, communi- you, you, you have credibility, but you also have communication. You have to speak. There is no such thing as a silent witness. Some of you may have heard a saying that is attributed to Francis of Assisi from the Middle Ages, um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Ever heard that? I hate that statement. It's absolutely ridiculous. And the, the best lampooning of it I've ever heard was in um, the Babylon Bee, which some of you may be familiar with, where the, 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 the fake satirical headline was, pastor resolves to feed the hungry at all times and when necessary to use food. Okay, how effectively can you feed the hungry without food? Well, not at all. Just in the same way, you cannot preach the gospel without words. It is words. He himself is the word, and he communicated truth that people have to know in order to be saved. So we have to communicate as well in order to be witnesses. Evangelism is at the heart of our mission. Other things compete for our attention. Other things may offer themselves as either components of our mission or perhaps the thing themselves. And we've seen many times when people have simply tried to do good things and call it the mission of the church. But brothers and sisters, if the Red Cross could do it, if the United Nations could do it, it's not missions. If there's no gospel, there's no mission. It is absolutely essential, not only that we meet human need, but that we also meet the greatest of all human needs, which is salvation from our sins. Because that is the condition of every human being, being in rebellion against God. Everyone faces eternity under judgment. And the most desperately important thing everyone has is to hear the good news of Jesus. And so we send people around the world to feed the hungry. We send people around the world to do medical work, to to build you know, infrastructure to do all kinds of good things. But we insist that whatever else you're doing, you're also an evangelist because that is the very heart of the mission that God has given us. What that means then is that we look at what the New Testament tells us and we've constructed an understanding of the missionary task that has evangelism at its heart. So here we have being witnesses. In Luke, we have proclaiming the good news. In Matthew, we have making disciples. So we share the gospel not just with the goal in mind of getting converts, but seeing disciples reborn and grow in their knowledge of God, in their conformity to the image of Christ, and in their equipping to do the mission of God. Well, 
Where do you do that? You do that in the context of a local church. It's one of our Baptist distinctives that we are convinced that local church is at the heart of the Christian life, that God never intended for Christians to be churchless, to be independent agents out on their own. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that it's in the body that we grow to maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4, it's only as each part of the body does its work that any of us become mature in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, none of us have all the gifts. All of us need what others bring to the table. And so if we're going to share the gospel and make disciples where there are no churches, we necessarily must plant churches. And we have been deeply committed to that since the beginning of our organization created by Southern Baptists in 1845. Well, for those churches to be healthy, they need trained leaders. They need pastors who can handle the word of God well who can teach the truth, and who can guard the flock against false teaching. So that means then that our missionary task is to share the gospel, disciple believers, plant churches, and train leaders. Now, we look at those four as the heart of the whole matter, and then recognize we've got to get there, and we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. So we talk about our six components. The first is entry, which is finding out where we need to go, that's research, figuring out how to get there, that's access, and it used to be access meant you just get a missionary visa and you go. Most of the places that most need the gospel now won't grant missionary visas, and so you may need to also be a doctor or an engineer or a farmer or a teacher or a sports coach or whatever in order to be present for the sake of the gospel. And then there's language. You have to be able to communicate. So we look at research, access, and language learning as entry. We do all of that for the sake of evangelism, making disciples, planting churches, and training leaders. But then our goal is to work ourselves out of a job. For that matter, at any given time, we can get kicked out of the country. And so we're aiming for exit not abandonment, but like the Apostle Paul, we go on, but we stay in touch. We go on, but we take them with us deeper into the darkness. We exit to partnership. So it is from these passages, this one here and the other expressions of the Great Commission, along with the rest of the New Testament, that we understand that's what we do. Your IMB is committed to that missionary task, and anything else we do needs needs to advance and nurture that. My main point, though, from this passage here is that if there is no evangelism, it isn't Christian missions. Evangelism requires words. The words must be spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then uses that to draw people to Jesus. But where are we supposed to do that? Jesus goes on. You're supposed to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you are, but also in all Judea and Samaria, close by, but also to the ends of the earth. Now, this is an Old Testament theme. The passage I spoke on last night, Isaiah 49, 6, says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is spoken to Messiah. 
it's clear that Messiah's mission was global in scope. And now that we are in Christ, so is ours. It's, in many ways, actually the table of contents of the book of Acts. So it starts in Jerusalem, and you see what what the Holy Spirit does through the early followers of Jesus right up to the stoning of Stephen there in Jerusalem where they were. Uh, He had told them to go further afield than that. They hadn't. So he used the stoning of Stephen to scatter them, and you see it happening in Judea and Samaria. And Judea and Samaria, Judea is where the Jews live, their own people. Samaria is where the people they most despised lived, and that was included as well, but it's right there. But then starting with Cornelius, you see it going to the nations. And so the story of the book of Acts is the story of the gospel pressing outward and crossing boundary after boundary toward the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem, it ends in Rome. This fits the entire Old Testament theme of God's heart for the nations, and it fits with what Jesus is making clear is the point of this time in the biblical timeline. See, it is never enough for the gospel to be where we are. It must also go where it is not. So that's, that's the very simple command. It's not for you to know the times or seasons set by the Father by his own authority. We are not called on to speculate about the details of the time. Instead, we're supposed to make use of the time for the purpose for which God has given us. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start where you are in Jerusalem. But I intend for this to reach to the ends of the earth and that's the commission that I am given, giving to my people. So, it's 2,000 years later. How are we doing? There is a sense in which you could say that we've done pretty well. Um, there's some sort of Christian witness in practically every country. Christianity is the only truly global religion on the planet. But in a more biblical sense, we're not doing that well at all. Almost a third of the world calls itself Christian. By the way, that includes probably everyone in this county. But only about 4% of the world is evangelical. As we've said during this missions conference, the focus of the Bible is on people groups, is on those with a sense of identity as we are us and they are them. Those who may have their own distinct culture, their own distinct language, their own distinct religion, but they definitely think of themselves as different from everyone else. That's the focus we have in the Bible. That's what the word nations means in the Bible. There are about 11,000 such people groups in the world, and 6,000 of them are unreached with the gospel. 3,000 of them are unengaged. That means no one's even trying to reach them with the gospel which means that over 4 billion people on earth have absolutely no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's more people than were alive on this planet the year I was born. There is now about 8 billion people on earth. Over 4 billion have zero access to the gospel. And most of the rest, to be honest, have practically no access to the gospel. It may be there, but no one's bothered to tell them. So... Is there a need here? And the answer is absolutely yes. North America is going more pagan by the day. You are surrounded by lost people 
And God put you here to share the gospel with them. We need more witness in this country. We need more witness in this county. We need more healthy churches all over this country. We need churches that exist but but that have lost their vision to be revitalized. That is absolutely true. However, we also need more workers for the global harvest. And that's where the horrible imbalance comes into play. See, the vast majority of evangelical Christian resources are right here in North America. We are the most evangelized 7% of the world's population, but 90% of the full-time Christian workers are here. In this country, anyone who wants to hear about Jesus can. But there's place after place, people after people around the world for whom that is simply not true. Who will in all likelihood be born, grow up, live, and die without ever hearing the only message that can save them from the consequences of their sin. And we at the International Mission Board, which is your sending agency that you with other Southern Baptist churches created for this purpose We are in the unique position of being able to send more people than we currently have ready to send. Um, You may have heard rumors that we stopped sending missionaries. Those rumors simply are not true. (coughs) And because of the generosity of Southern Baptists, we have hundreds of job requests for every conceivable kind of missionary work around the world all aimed at sharing the gospel, discipling believers, planting churches, and training leaders. And yet, we don't have the people to send. Just to give you an idea of what it can be like in another part of the world, uh, Catherine and I spent most of our adult lives in Central Asia. When we arrived on the field, this area, which has 380 million Muslims in it, had maybe 4,000 Christians in the entire region of 13 countries. We have seen God respond in amazing ways, and we have seen the number of believers go from 4,000 to well over 100,000. Muslims are not unreachable with the gospel. That's to say the Holy Spirit doesn't have power with them that he does with us. Everywhere we have gone, without exception, planted our lives, learned the language, and shared the gospel. Without exception, we have seen people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is there's not enough people doing that. So that even today, the most evangelized people group in Central Asia is now one-tenth of one percent Christian. When I was regional leader for that part of the world, someone asked me once, well, how do you know where you need to send missionaries? I said, there's a map. Got a dart? (laughs) I mean, you name it. Wherever it lands, odds are overwhelming they've never heard the gospel and won't unless something changes. So that simply means that, yes, we need active, healthy, evangelistic churches right here. But you're here. And even more, we need missionaries who will take the gospel where it's never been heard. So what do you do about it? The first thing that I will say any time I talk about this subject is that if you are not already a believer in Jesus, you need most importantly to repent of your sins and put your faith in him. 
Uh, I would never assume in a room this size that everyone here is already a Christian. And so let me simply remind you of what it is that we're witnessing to. What we're witnessing to is the reality that God is a holy God who hates sin, who hates everything that's evil, who hates rebellion against himself. And we are a rebellious people. Every single human on earth has rebelled against God. Every human being on earth has alienated ourselves from God and have declared war against him. And God would be totally just if he simply sent us all to hell. But this God who is holy is also astonishingly merciful and loving. And rather than simply give us what we deserve, he became one of us and took on himself what we deserve. And so in the person of Jesus, God became a man. He lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father that we should have lived but haven't. And he then died a death on the cross in which he suffered the penalty we deserve to die. We deserve to suffer. He died in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserve to have. And he drank it to the very bottom and exhausted it. He truly died, and then he truly rose again. And in his resurrection, he conquered sin and death and hell forever. And he has now sent his people into the world with this glorious message that anyone who repents, which means you surrender, you drop your rebellion, you do a 180-degree turn, and puts their trust in Jesus rather than in themselves or anything else, anyone who does that will be reconciled to God, will be saved forever in a way that will have glorious consequences in this life and even more glorious consequences in the life to come as we enjoy him forever. That's the gospel. And if you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you to do so today because that is the single most important thing you will ever do in your life. Apart from that, your life will be meaningless and your life after life will be alienated from God. But for those of us who are believers, we are going to make disciples be a disciple. Grow as a disciple in the fellowship of your local church. Uh, Lean in and lean in hard. Lean in in making Jesus the number one priority in your life. One of the things that um, has been a subject of conversation several times this weekend is just thinking about what it would be like if all the Christians, even in this county, acted like it. If all of us made Jesus the most important thing in our lives. See, one of the aspects of discipleship is the transformation of purpose. The world tells us to live for ourselves. The gospel tells us to live for him. The world tells us that we measure success by things like income, what house we live in, what our reputation is, what kind of job we've got, stuff like that. The gospel tells us that success is measured by faithfulness to him. And it may be the most successful thing you can do to die for Jesus or to give up everything for Jesus that that's success of the kind that will matter a thousand years from now. So I would encourage you, I would plead with you, all of us who are believers in Jesus in this room, let's take it seriously. Go deep in your conformity to the image of Christ and in, in your giving of all that you are and all that you have in service to Christ. That includes then sharing the gospel where you are. 
And I strongly encourage everyone here to think of themselves as an evangelist. Now, not everyone is as gifted in evangelism as other people, and that's okay. We are gifted differently, and that's all right, but that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. That doesn't mean that we can just say, oh, the pastor will do the evangelism, or oh, the deacons will do the evangelism, or oh, the Sunday school teachers will do the evangelism. No, we are all called to be witnesses. The command is equally applicable to everyone. And you need to think of yourself as a witness in the places where God has planted you. So God put you in your neighborhood to be a witness there. God puts you in your school or at your job to be his witness there. God puts you in your recreational life to be a witness there. And I regard myself quite seriously as called by God to Gold's Gym in Richmond, Virginia for the sake of sharing Jesus as I lift weights. Because God's orchestrating everything. And he intends for us to regard ourselves as being on call, on duty, all the time as his representatives in all the places he's put us in life. Grow as a disciple. Share the gospel where you are. Serve faithfully in this church. Build up this church. I mean, Jesus regards the church as his bride. And we need to treat it that way as something precious, as something glorious that we willingly invest ourselves in. Continue to do the things that you know that we ask, ask churches to do. Uh, be diligent in prayer for us. Uh, it is amazing the things that we have seen God do in response to prayer through, through the years and, and through our time of missionary service. And if you're wondering what to pray... You can go online, imb.org slash pray, and you will find more prayer resources than you know what to do with. You can even download an app, the IMB Pray app, and have on your phone urgent, up-to-date prayer needs from your missionaries around the world. Make prayer for missions not just a regular part of your church life, but a regular part of your personal life as well. Continue with the generous giving that you're doing. And let me simply say on behalf of everyone at the IMB, thank you. Thank you for the way that through the cooperative program and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you have freed us to focus on the mission that God called us to do. We have the best missionary support system in the world. And it's because of the generosity of folks like you. But let me simply say when Lottie Moon Christmas offering season rolls around, just remember that there are billions of people who need the gospel, and we need the resources to send far more missionaries than we are now. So thank you for your generosity. Let me urge you to make this a top priority. But then the question comes, okay, but what about going? And I have heard many times of, of churches, associations, areas, that they pray and they give, but they never go. Well, I already know that's not true of Lincoln County. And the reason I know that is that I've run into too many missionaries on the field who are from Lincoln County. You may not believe this, but in missionary circles, this association's kind of famous. And it's famous because of some amazing people who have come out of here and gone to the mission field. That just means that our expectations are higher and higher. We need more and more. 
And as I said last night, that doesn't just mean preachers. That also means people with other kinds of professional skills that will get them into places where you can't go as a missionary per se. It also doesn't just mean healthy, strong young people, although we certainly want them. It also means retirees, people like me whose, whose hair or beard is white, who therefore have credibility in other cultures that a younger person doesn't have. Anyone who has the physical ability to do so and who is, who is mature in Christ can be an effective instrument in his hands to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I'd like to close by what I call flipping the question. Typically, people think about a missionary call as something kind of like what happened to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. They think, okay, I need to be knocked off a horse. I need to be blinded by a blinding light. I need to hear a voice out of heaven. And then I might maybe consider thinking about it, about becoming a missionary. That's the wrong way to look at it. God has called all of us to service, all of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to serve him. And so the question is not, am I called, but simply where and how. And if you're already called anyway, why not make it the default that you go where you're needed most unless God makes clear otherwise? So instead of asking, why me, ask, why not me? Again, if you have the health, if you have the ability, if you are yourself a growing disciple in Jesus, ask, Lord, why don't I go? where there's no one right now sharing the good news of Jesus. I'm convinced that no one has a right to be anywhere until they're willing to be everywhere. That no one has the right to settle in one place until their yes is on the table and they can genuinely say, genuinely, honestly sing, wherever he leads, I'll go. So brothers and sisters, I want to conclude simply then with this invitation. It is... First of all, a gospel invitation. If there is anyone here who has not trusted in Christ for their salvation, I encourage you strongly, make today the day that happens. If there are people here who are not plugged into a healthy local church, you're sitting in one. And I would encourage you to put your, your, your stake down here and to make church membership a major part of your life and to join this church. But I also want to extend the invitation that if God is moving in your mind and heart to say, well, why not me? I'm simply willing to explore it further. This may be the day that also you need to make that commitment. So I'm going to pray, and then our musicians are going to come up. There's going to be people standing here in front to receive you. I would simply ask, put a blank check on the table before God whatever he wants to do with your life. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us, and we are so grateful to you for it. Father, every one of us here in this room who knows the Lord Jesus can think of the people who have shared the good news with us. And we thank you for the faithfulness of those believers who have taken seriously this command that we're to be your witnesses. But, Father, I pray that it wouldn't stop with us. I pray, Father, that you would raise up out of this church a steady stream of those who will take the gospel where it's never been heard before. 
I pray that you would make everyone in this church a faithful witness to the reality of Jesus in their community. And Father, I pray that there would be people joining us in heaven who right now have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel because of what you do through East Haven Baptist Church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.